pray together. Father, our prayer is that you would help us to hope in you. That no matter what this world or this life throws at us, we would not be cast aside. We wouldn't stumble and be so scandalized that we fall away from you. But that you would hold us and keep us and help us to persevere in the faith, come what may. I pray for your servants that are here. I pray for those who are doing well. I pray for those who are suffering. I pray that they would see your hand in everything that happens to them and that they would see your care and love for them and that your grace and mercy would be sufficient for them. And Lord, I pray that this word would help us to see those truths. So Father, open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. James Braddock is no longer a household name, but it used to be. Um, he made his mark as a boxer beginning with his first fight in 1923. You all probably know James Braddock by his nickname, the Cinderella Man, which was the title of a 2005 movie about his life, starring Russell Crowe and Renee Zellweger. But you can go online and you can read about his life. That movie was, was based on real events and things that actually happened in his life. Uh, Wikipedia has the story. Um, it talks about the fact that he turned pro at the age of 21. After three years, his record was 44-2-2 and two with 21 knockouts. By 1928, Braddock had pulled off a major upset by knocking out the highly regarded uh, fighter named Tuffy Griffiths. Uh, the following year, he earned a chance to fight for the title, but he narrowly lost to a guy named Tommy Loughran. It was a 15-round decision, and after he lost this, his first chance at the title, he was really depressed by this, and he was badly hurt after the fight. His hand had been really fractured in several places in the process, and so he was dogged by these injuries in his right hand after that one time where he failed to win the title, and his, his career went into this tailspin. And over the next 33 fights, he went like 11, 20, and 2. And during this time, he met Mae Fox, married her in 1930. They had three children right there during, uh, at the beginning of the outset of the Great Depression. With his injuries and his boxing career collapsing, he was forced to give up the sport altogether so that he could find employment to care for his family. He, couldn't, he just couldn't earn a living anymore boxing. But it was difficult to find work, especially if you're looking for manual labor, which was what a lot of guys were trying to do back then. And he had a bum hand. You know, his hand was messed up. And so for, um, for a time, um, he landed this job finally at the docks where he was working, loading, and unloading boats. He was a longshoreman. And if you watch the movie, the movie's depiction of his life, this point of his life is really gut-wrenching because 
um, he is so poor. His family is so impoverished. Um, he has to half starve himself just to make sure that his kids are fed. They're living in a basement in New Jersey. They're all hungry. Their electricity at one point gets turned off. They're freezing. He has to go on to welfare for about 10 months, which greatly humiliated him. And there was this pressure coming in to break up his family and to send the children to relatives who are in a better position financially to care for them. But he doesn't do that. He works himself to the bone and he keeps his family together. But while he's working at the docks as a longshoreman, he's having to deal with the fact that his right hand has been injured in his boxing career, and yet he still has to load and unload ships. And so he compensates for his weak and injured right hand by using his left hand during his work at the docks. And so over and over, loading and unloading, using only his left hand. Over time, his left hand became stronger than his right hand. Five years into the Depression, Braddock begins begging his manager for a chance to fight again. And finally, in 1934, he gets back into the ring. And it's just supposed to be uh, you know, a stepping stone for this other fighter. But Braddock comes in, and he's been working as a longshoreman, and all of a sudden, it's not just his right hand that's healed and strong, but his left hand is stronger than it ever was before, and he knocks this guy out in the third round. He gets two more fights, he wins, and the next thing you know, he gets an opportunity to fight a guy named Max Bayer for the World Heavyweight Championship. And if you've seen the, the movie, you know the rest of the story. Max Bayer's handlers had set up the fight thinking it would be just this easy payday for the champ to defend his title. But, and Braddock goes into the fight a 10-to-1 underdog. During the fight, Bayer gets some massive hits in on Braddock, but Braddock has this iron chin. It's like he, he just keeps coming, wearing down Bayer, who seemed to be perplexed by the fact that Braddock just could take a punch. And so at the end of the fight, there was no knockout. They go through all 15 rounds. At the end of the fight, the judges give Braddock the title with a unanimous decision. And so the Cinderella man, this uh, hero of the Depression, this guy from, came from nothing, comes out of obscurity and becomes the world heavyweight champion. But I'm telling you this story because Braddock's rise to the top came only after his descent to the bottom. He was the strongest as a fighter, not in his early career, in his youthful strength. He became strong only after he was taken all the way down by his broken hand and by his beleaguered and impoverished family. Only after he became weak did he become strong. What would have happened if he'd never injured his hand? What would have happened if he would have just kept on boxing without being broken and beleaguered by this injury and by poverty. He never would have been a longshoreman. He never would have spent years strengthening that left arm. He likely never would have achieved the heavyweight championship without first being made weak. I think you know where I'm going This going with this. What, what would your life look like if you just went on from strength to strength in everything that you did? What would it look like if you never got sick? What would it look like if you never had any failures at your work? 
never had to walk through any major suffering or grief in your life, what would your life be like? Maybe you've seen people around you and you look at them and their lives and you think, well, that's kind of how it is for them. They don't really have anything hard ever really happen to them. What's it like for them? You ever seen somebody like this? They seem to just get to go on from strength to strength all the time. They're a financial success in nearly every opportunity they get. They seem to stay physically fit and attractive. They get all the breaks at work and in life. And when you see somebody like this, how many of them do you know to be great in faith and great in the things of God? I'm not saying there aren't any, but how many are there? Do their successes and prosperity lead them to be more dependent on God? Or do their successes and prosperity become an occasion for enlarging their own soul towards things that aren't important? As you look back over your own life and your walk with the Lord, can you identify key moments in your life where you were very, very weak, where you had maybe a significant failure or a significant bout with suffering, a trial in your life, which in retrospect, looking back, God clearly used to draw you more to himself and to strengthen you. Can you see even in your own life, if you've lived any amount of time, the answer to this question is going to be yes, but can, can you discern a pattern of God using trials for good in your life? Well, this is the issue that Paul is grappling with in the text before us this morning. If you haven't already, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. Our message this morning is part two of our last message in 2 Corinthians. So last time was how do the humble boast, part one. And here we're going to see Paul continue on this, how do the humble boast, part two. Last time we saw Paul boasting in his address to the church at Corinth, but we also saw that he only boasted reluctantly and that he boasted only in his weaknesses, his weakness, his suffering, his trials. He says in chapter 11, verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. So Paul is continuing now in chapter 12 with a similar theme, and in the process, he's showing us how a humble person is supposed to boast. And I've got two points this morning, really simple. The humble person, if they boast, they're going to boast obliquely. That's verses 1 through 5. And they're going to boast in weakness. And that's in verses 6 through 10. They boast obliquely, verses 1 through 5. And then they boast in weakness, verses 6 through 10. So first of all, the humble boast obliquely. Everybody look at verse 1. Paul says, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now, notice here, when I said, I said that Paul boasts obliquely, um, what I'm saying is, is that in this section, Paul is going to boast indirectly and evasively. He's going to highlight an extraordinary experience that he had, but he's going to do it in a way that mutes his own participation in what happened. So notice in verse 1, it begins with, he says, I must go on boasting. 
And you might have caught that there's a connection back to chapter 11 and verse 30. Because verse 1, he says, I must go on boasting. Boasting, chapter 11, verse 30 says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. So Paul's already said that if he boasts at all, he wants it to be boasting in his weakness, the things that are unimpressive about him. Now in, in verse 1, he's saying similarly, he has to go on boasting like this, presumably about his weaknesses. But then he takes this little detour. He says, though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Nothing to be gained by this. I don't want to you know, aggrandize myself here. It's not particularly edifying, but I need to go on and to talk to you about visions and revelations of the Lord. So what is he talking about when he says visions and revelations? Um, you can see throughout the Bible particularly in the New Testament, people who have experiences of visions and revelations. So um, Luke chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 8, you remember Zechariah. He saw a vision of an angel while serving in the temple. And he was told that his wife Elizabeth would bear a son named John. That, that came to him in a vision in the temple. Matthew 17, verse 9, Peter, James, and John see a vision of Jesus when he appears with Moses and Elijah at the transfiguration. And Jesus says, Matthew 17, 9, tell the vision to no one. Luke chapter 24, verse 22, the women who went to Jesus' tomb said they had seen a vision of angels telling them Jesus was alive. Uh, Acts 7, 55, Stephen saw a vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God just before he's martyred. Acts chapter 9, verse 10, Ananias saw a vision of the Lord telling him, to seek out Saul of Tarsus after Saul had this encounter with the Lord that, that saved him. Acts chapter 10. You remember, Peter sees a vision of a sheep coming down out of heaven with all this unclean food and God, the Lord telling him to, to eat from, from this food. It's a vision that he sees. And then, of course, the book of Revelation. The whole book is John's account of revelations made to the author while he was on the Isle of Patmos. So visions... Revelations. You see this all throughout. There are these supernatural experiences where you see these heavenly realities. Sometimes a divine being there. The Lord himself may be an angel, but visions, and, you're, and often they're associated with God revealing things in them. Paul himself saw a number of visions from the Lord. We know from Acts chapter 9, the first and most important vision he saw was when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Acts chapter 16, Paul saw a vision of a man from Macedonia calling him to come over and to minister to the Macedonians. And then you'll remember when he went to Corinth, um, the persecution got stirred up so much that he felt like he needed to flee. But then there was, he had a vision of the Lord Jesus telling him, no, don't leave, you stay. So Paul had received visions from the Lord. He'd received revelations from the Lord. Paul says in Galatians 1.12 that he had received his gospel by a revelation from the Lord and that his insights in, into the mystery of the gospel, his access to true wisdom and understanding of particular truths, they were all based on revelations from God. Ephesians chapter 3 and 1 Corinthians 2 and 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul himself has experienced visions and revelations and we see these all through scripture. These experiences 
are not lowly experiences. They're miraculous on their face, and they are much more impressive in worldly terms than being let down in a basket through a wall to flee persecution. You remember we were talking about last in our last message, Paul shares uh, one of his weak moments when he had to flee persecution, and they, they let him out like a piece of bread through the wall. It was humiliating. But he's had these other experiences too. They are much more exalted. And somebody could be tempted to boast about such experiences. But Paul says he's not going to do that. Rather, he's going to refer to one such experience of a vision and a revelation. And he's going to refer to it for his reader's sake, presumably because they needed to be reassured of his apostolic bona fides. Because remember, what's going on in Corinth? False teachers have invaded. These false teachers are operating by, um, most likely, by presenting alternative revelations to the people, saying they hear from the Lord. Um, kind of like in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 18, where Paul talks about the false teachers there. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. This is kind of always the way with false teachers. This is the way false religions get started. It's by alternative revelations of the Lord. You come into the, uh, an assembly of God's people, you tell them you have heard from the Lord, and no longer do you need to pay attention to Paul and the apostles, but you can pay attention to this new revelation that I received. So what's his name? Joseph uh, Smith hears from the angel Moroni and um, you know, gets the Book of Mormon. Um, it's an alternative revelation. These people are inflated in their own minds by their own fleshly lusts. Same kind of thing was probably what was going on here with these false teachers. And so Paul is saying, he's kind of matching these guys by referring to his own visions and, and re revelations here. But he says this in verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Now, when you read this, it sounds like Paul is telling this story about somebody else. But he's actually telling this story about himself. How do we know that? Well, if you look at verse 7, Paul says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Who was the one receiving the revelations? Paul was. Okay, But he's referring himself to himself in the third person. Why is he doing that here? Well, I think the answer here is pretty straightforward. It's a rhetorical maneuver to draw attention away from himself. He's not telling this story to aggrandize himself, but to get the Corinthians to see the greatness of the revelations that were given to him. <clears throat> Whatever the false teachers were claiming about having heard from God, their experiences come nowhere close to the revelations that Paul experienced as an apostle. Their stuff is made up and fake. Paul's is real and authentic. 
Paul says that this experience happened to him 14 years previous to the writing of this letter, which means it happened around, probably around A.D. 42, okay? That would have been several years after his conversion. So this event can't be referring to the, that vision we know that he had on the Damascus Road. It would have had to have been several years after that, early on in his ministry. So we, we don't really know what he's talking about here. It doesn't appear to be recorded in the book of Acts or anywhere else. But notice that Paul says that in this vision, he was taken up to the third heaven and to paradise. The question is, what are these places the third heaven and paradise. Now, um, I don't want you to glaze over at this point, but these are mysterious um, phrases he's using. And it, it probably would help to know that in contemporary Jewish literature, there were already connections being made between the third heaven and paradise. Um, there's evidence in extra-biblical and Jewish Gentile literature of the time depicting the heavens divided into ascending layers sometimes portraying three, five, or seven different heavens. I don't think that that's what he's appealing to here, though. I think this reference to the third heaven really probably goes back to the Old Testament, uh, an Old Testament expression found in Solomon's dedication to the temple, 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 27, <clears throat> where you see a reference to heaven and the heaven of heavens. So think about that. The heaven, which would be the sky above, and then the heaven of the heavens, okay? So it, the, the evidence was is that there, the many early Jews viewed the heavens as kind of divided into three layers. You had the kind of lower tier, which was just, you know, the clouds and the birds, that area that you see. Then you have the more distant heavens, like the sun and the moon. And then you have this third level of unseen, the place where God dwells, right? Our Father who art in heaven, well, you don't necessarily see him when you're looking at the sun or the birds or the clouds. There must be this other realm beyond where, where, where God dwells. Interestingly, there was this uh, book in the first century called The Apocalypse of Moses. Not a Christian book, a Jewish book. Um, dates to around the same time as the New Testament. And has a passage in which, it, it, it's, it's mythological, but, but there's a passage where God tells the archangel Michael to take Adam and to lift him up into paradise unto the third heaven. And so you, there were Jews already in that period associating the third heaven with this, with this paradise. And so uh, the third heaven and paradise are the same place. And I think that that's what, what Paul is, is saying here as well. These are not two different experiences, two different experiences of being caught up one time to the third heaven, one time to paradise. I think it's the same place. He's saying that this paradise is a place in the third heaven. Um, you'll remember that this term paradise refer, uh, is used repeatedly in the Old Testament to refer to the Garden of Eden. So in Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3, Jesus tells the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, right? And then finally in the book of, of Revelation in chapter 2 verse 7, it says, um, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So when you look at paradise in the New Testament, it's associated with, with uh, the third heaven. Paradise is what was lost when Adam and Eve sinned. It's what's being kept for those who have faith in Christ, 
Today you'll be with me in paradise. And it's what will be restored at the renewal of all things. And so Paul is saying he got a glimpse of all of this in this vision. He gets to see the heavenly realities of paradise. He got ushered into the highest heaven where God dwells, where God is reserving an inheritance for his people, that place that's going to come down to earth at the end of the age. So the dwelling place of God will be joined to the dwelling place of man. Paul sees all of this, whether in the body or out of the body. He doesn't know. And if Paul doesn't know, there's no way you and I are going to know. But he experiences this somehow in a a first-person kind of a way. And he sees a glimpse of the heavenly reality. And while there, he says, he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And literally, the, the term there, it's not just that man may not utter, it's, it's not lawful for him to utter, which means for whatever reason, God is not permitting him to repeat what he heard there. Paul says in verse 5, on behalf of this man, I will boast, but on behalf of myself, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Paul, he continues to refer to himself in the third person here. He's referring obliquely to himself, drawing attention away from himself. But he's bringing this experience up probably because he felt he had to to address these false teachers, to stand them down. But he doesn't want to make this experience the grounds of his present boasting. He's just not going to do that. You ever been around somebody who boasts in spiritual, charismatic experiences? And all of these sort of supernatural, slain in the spirit, speaking in tongues, spiritual experiences, and they make it the grounds of boasting and assurance before God? Paul does not do that. He is not going to make these... He had these unbelievable experience, spiritual experiences, but he doesn't make it his you know, pedigree here. Uh, to them. He is not going to, to, to boast like that. Why? The only thing he wants to boast about in the present is his weakness. Because it's these, because it's not these revelatory experiences that make him look most like Christ. It's his suffering that makes him look most like Christ. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, for I've been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's view of the Christian life was that he was supposed to be just living Christ's life over again. He was trying to put on display for the world the life that Christ had lived. And what happened to Jesus in his life? Birds of the ears have nests. Foxes have holes. Son of man has no place to lay his head. He's homeless. He gets delivered over to persecution and to suffering. The guy lives a lowly life. And Paul's saying, I'm living that life over again. I'm going to be identified with the sufferings of Christ. Now, I mentioned this in a message last summer, but I thought it might be relevant to mention it again today. Last June at the Southern Baptist Convention, there was a church that came under scrutiny by the convention because they had ordained female pastors in their church. 
And uh, more recently, that church's pastor stepped aside and they hired another pastor and his wife to be co-pastors, both of them teaching pastors in this church. And um, I saw just a couple of days ago that her first, uh, Dustin Brown just sent me a, a link saying that showing the, the, that the female pastor is going to have her first sermon today at, at this church. Well, they're a Southern Baptist church, and this, of course, caused a big stink at the con convention, caused uh, there to be a question about whether they would remain in the church, uh, because uh, remain in the convention because the Baptist faith and message so cl clearly, our doctrinal statement so clearly rules this out of, out of bounds. But at the convention, the president of the SBC gave the pastor of this church a chance to come up, about 10 minutes to come up and to defend himself and his church as messengers were considering whether or not to remove this church from the convention. And what happened next was just unbelievable. Instead of offering a defense of why they were doing female pastors, he basically gave us a litany of all of his ministerial accomplishments. And it went on and on and on. It was not the Lord's accomplishments either. It was his accomplishments. And it was astonishing to hear. He talked about how Billy Graham had been his mentor. He talked about um, how he had preached at over 120 crusades before he was 20 years old. How he and his wife had built this church to its current size and influence. He talked about baptizing 56,000 new believers. He said um, they planted 90 churches in their county alone and literally thousands around the world. He just goes through all the stats, all their successes. No way to look at this except that he was, he was boasting uh, to the convention. He said at one point that he had the privilege of training 1.1 million pastors. And then he says, sorry, friends, that's more than all the seminaries put together. And he said hardly anything at all about why he was there talking. He just goes through these boasts about their ministry successes as if that's supposed to erase all concerns about doctrinal aberrations. But what I wanted to ask him afterward, thinking about this, was where are those 56,000 people you baptized? Are they still walking with Jesus? I hope they are. How did they fare when they got cancer? How did they hold up when their children died suddenly in an accident? When you suffer, and when your congregation was suffering, was the grace of God resting heavily and obviously on you and on your people? How did it go when you had to preach a hard word to the congregation and some people began to rebel against God's word? Did you even ever preach those kinds of sermons at your church? The reason I wanted to ask that is because the truth is, it's not your prosperity that displays Christ to the world. It's not your successes. It's not your enormous bank account. It's not your big house, your large church, your fit body, your stylish clothes that are going to display Christ to the world. It's not your elite education or degrees on your wall. It's not your charisma or personal magnetism. You know what's going to display Christ most of the world? It's your suffering. What you do in the midst of suffering. Anybody can serve Christ when it's easy and everything is going well. Any unregenerate person could, could find external benefits 
in playing the part of a Christian if there's a worldly benefit involved to it. But only people who are filled with the Spirit of the living God can serve Christ, savor Christ, and worship Christ when they lose everything. Do you know why we have the book of Job in our Bible? You know why it resonates so deeply with us and moves us whenever we read it? It's not because of how wealthy Job was at the beginning and the end of the story. And he was fabulously wealthy. It's because of how Job responded when God destroyed his wealth, took his children, and broke his healthy body. He was so wretched that his wife said to him, why don't you just curse God and die? And you remember how Job responds to this. Woman, you speak as one of the foolish women. Should we not accept... Should we accept good from the Lord and not adversity? The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He worships the Lord in the midst of his adversity. We marvel at Job not because of his wealth, but because of his worship in the midst of suffering. Job's worship in suffering bears witness to the greatness and the goodness of God. That even if you have nothing else, as long as you have him, you have everything that you need. That's how you are going to bear witness most powerfully in your own life. It's not going to be through your prosperity or your triumphs. It's going to be through your suffering. Don't boast in your triumphs. Nobody cares. Boast in the grace of God made manifest in your suffering, in your weaknesses. That's what we care about. How do the humble boast? When they have to talk about things that God has done, they're going to boast obliquely. They're going to do it in a way like Paul does, which draws attention to the greatness of God and draws attention away from himself. They boast obliquely. But the second thing, they boast in weakness. Everybody look at verse 6. Though if I should boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Paul, and I'm going to summarize this just quickly, but Paul is saying that if he really wanted to play up his triumphs, he could do that. And he wouldn't be a fool for doing that. He'd, he'd just be telling the truth. But he doesn't want to play up that part of his experience. He doesn't want to draw attention to these spiritually profound experiences. After all, the people he would be telling them to, they didn't witness these things. And anybody can come in and tell these wild and crazy stories. What he wants them to think about him is what they view and witness in him. What do they view and witness in him? Not his revelations and all this thing. They witness his character. They witness how he responds in sufferings. They want, he wants them to see that and not to worry about anything beyond that because that is what's going to authenticate whether or not he is truly following Christ. Anybody can follow Christ when they're just going from strength to strength. But what about the guy who suffers and is stoned and left for dead? What about that guy? What about the guy who's getting chased out of Corinth such that Jesus has to appear to him in a vision and say, don't leave, okay? How does that guy respond to suffering? He doesn't want them to think of anything about him except that how he responds in those situations. He wants them to view him through the lens of suffering and weakness. Why? Well, he's about to explain how God uses human weakness to glorify himself. Look at verse 7. 
So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Paul knows what you and I know. Our flesh can take any good thing and just corrupt it. Any good gift from God, we can just in our flesh make it all about us, turn it into an idol, make it a ground for boasting. Paul knows that he is prone to that as well. And so he says, because of that, to keep him from exalting himself, God gives him this thorn in the flesh to keep him from becoming conceited. Now, obviously, the thorn in the flesh is some kind of metaphor for suffering. Um, what, what is it referring to specifically, though? Some interpreters think that the suffering is psychological. Like he's already mentioned, he had his constant concern for the churches. Could be that. Some people think the thorn is referring to the persecutions that he, he's having to endure. Maybe especially at the hands of uh, unbelievers, so that these unbelieving persecutors, perhaps even the false teachers themselves. They are the thorn in his flesh. But I think the thorn in the flesh really most likely indicates some kind of a problem or ailment in his body. Because he says the thorn is in his flesh, which is, which is a reference to his body. So he had, it, it seems to me that he had some kind of bodily condition or illness that was extremely painful to him. And he's having to go from place to place to place with this element. I don't know what it is. I can't verify for sure. I think there's evidence in the New Testament that after he was blinded in the Damascus vision, he had an ongoing problem with his eyes. Can you imagine how difficult it would be if you're having problems with your eyes, traveling from place to place, writing letters? Remember Paul saying in Galatians, see with what letter, large letters I write to you. Um, he says in... Um, uh, also in Galatians, that when I was with you, you had a, you know, a gracious manner towards me. You would have given me your very eyes. Um, so it seems like he had a problem with, with his, his eyes. But I don't know what it was. But he had some sort of, I think, bodily condition that was very, very difficult and painful for him. And Paul says that the, that thorn was a messenger of Satan to harass me. But that translation doesn't really do it do it justice because the term harass actually means something like to strike with a fist. It's the term used of Jesus when his tormentors are spitting in his face and beating him with their fists in Matthew chapter 26. So this thorn in the flesh is like beating him in the face. That's what's going on here. So there's this notion not only of being, uh, of suffering, but of degrading humiliation. That's what's going on. Like a bully beating up on the weaker kid. It, it, you know, it's not just painful, it's humiliating when that happens. So this bodily condition for Paul was not just painful, but it was, it was humbling to him. Enough to keep his ego in check. The fact that the thorn is, is called a messenger of Satan ought to make you kind of do a little double take here. If that thorn was given by God, and if it's also a messenger of of Satan, doesn't that mean that God is using Satan for his own purposes? Well, that's exactly what it means. And um, it shouldn't be any different, or you know, from what you've read elsewhere in Scripture, certainly not a surprise. We saw this even with, in the book of Job. 
Satan is looking to destroy Job. Satan asks for permission to inflict grievous suffering on Job. And God says, yes. Who's controlling Satan at that point? God is. Here's the beautiful thing about this story, though. What, what Satan meant for evil, God means for good. And in the end, God does work all things together for good for, for Job. Because Job loves God and he's called according to his purpose. So, so the Bible does teach that Satan is like a dog, but he's God's dog. And he's on God's leash. And God can let out the leash or pull in the leash at his own discretion and for his own holy and wise purposes. And in this case, it's to keep Paul's pride in check. A messenger of Satan has come to him to afflict him, to keep his pride in check. Now, that wasn't Satan's purpose. It was God's purpose. Satan wasn't trying to keep his pride in check. That was God's purpose. That's what he's doing for, that's what God is doing for Paul. What's the point here? Well, it means that you can take courage. God can take all the malevolent intentions of Satan and work them out for your good. His intentions towards you are not what are ultimate. Jesus says that the enemy comes to steal and to kill and destroy, but he has come to give life and to give it more abundantly. Satan has his own agency in the world, but God's agency supersedes and controls Satan's agency. Satan is not ultimate. God is ultimate. That's why we don't fear the one who can destroy the body only. We fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell, and we fear the one who is also able to supersede Satan's designs and work them for our good. Just like the hymn says, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. He is under the sovereign agency of God. And everything that he designs to do, God works it out for our good. So look at verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You should relate to this. I mean, here you, you see Paul earnestly praying that the Lord would remove this trial from him. Three times he pleads with the Lord, Lord, take it away. Make it stop. Remove it. Make this pain end. You ever prayed like that about something? You ever had a deep and abiding trial in your life, a fear or a grief, and you plead with the Lord, Lord, take this away? Remove it, make the pain stop. That's the kind of trial Paul's having right here. He asks the Lord over and over, take this away. God answers his prayer, but he doesn't answer it in the way that God, that, that Paul wanted. Instead of taking away the trial, God entered into the trial with him and with his grace. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. God wants Paul to experience the fullness of his power and grace, but that can only be experienced in weakness. It doesn't happen in prosperity. It doesn't happen in health. It doesn't happen when you're at the top of your game. God's power is perfected in weakness. 
Why is that? Because health and prosperity may make you happy, but they don't make you holy. They give you a sense of self-sufficiency, oftentimes a sense of settledness and comfort. They can lull you into self-reliance and into arrogance. Suffering makes you realize that you need God and you need him desperately. If he doesn't show up in the midst of your suffering, then all is lost. That's what you learn. God's power sustaining you in weakness is when you are going to display Christ the most. Look at verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, is Paul saying that he likes going through suffering? No, he's not saying that. Nobody likes to go through suffering. He asked God to remove the suffering. That's not the point. Of course he doesn't like it. So what what is Paul saying when he says, I'm content with weaknesses? These are the words of a man who can see the big picture. He's learned how to look at the trials in his life, and they really are trials. They really are hard. They cause real tears, real grief. He's learned how to look at those trials in his life as the canvas upon which God is painting a masterpiece of grace. If he refuses the trials, then he'll never get the masterpiece at the end. You know, C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Problem of Pain, that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world, end quote. Now, when our bodies are working well, when our bank accounts are full, when we're gainfully employed, and the biggest worry we have is who's going to win the next football game on television, when, all, when that's your life, it's easy to turn from the eternal and to the trivial. It's easy for us to forget our maker, the shortness of the time that we've been given, the necessities of heaven and hell and judgment. We forget about the most important things and become absorbed in comforts. Sometimes even making, making idols out of them. How does God get the attention of sated sinners who live their lives as if God were mar- a marginal figure in the world? Have you ever noticed how easy it is to become deaf to God in your pleasures? Have you ever noticed how prone your heart is to fixate on trivialities in seasons of ease and tranquility in your life? It's true that God's always with you, always there whispering in your conscience Don't waste your life on trivialities. Have me, have me. But how easy it is to suppress and ignore God when we feel like we don't need him. And we feel most like we don't need him when all of our comforts are on full blast. But if we can't hear God's whispers in our pleasures, he knows how to raise his voice in our pain. God knows how to sober his saints through suffering. That's the point. And the question you have to ask yourself is, will you have ears to hear, not only when he whispers in your pleasures, but when he shouts in your suffering? If we don't hear God when he shouts through the megaphone, when would we ever hear him? So the reason he wants, he he takes us through suffering and he brings it sovereignly into our lives is because he wants us to know more of him. That's the bottom line. And there are some things we can't learn but through suffering. And he wants us to know the riches of his grace, but you'll never get those riches if you're focused on the riches that this world has to offer. 
It's when he kicks out all of the supports that you begin to see what you really need. So let me just close with a, a few words about thorns in the flesh that you and I experience. And I'm going to take all three of these. This will be really brief. All three of these are from Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. In faithfulness you have afflicted me. When you get to the end of your life, you're going to find that all of your afflictions, as far as God is concerned, were justified and righteous. You're also going to find that God will have used all of them for your good. Every single one of them. The struggle now is to see those truths now in the midst of the suffering. To trust the Lord that he is using this as a canvas upon which he's painting the masterpiece. It's hard when you get the doctor's report. And it's really short. We just got news yesterday of our dear brother who used to be a, an elder here. Pray for him. Warren Geldmeyer. His cancer has come back. And it's apparently a, a very short time frame he's been given. It's, it's hard. The struggle is to believe it when you get that kind of news. That God is going to work all of this for my good. And that one day I will see that this will turn out to be the masterpiece. Psalm 119.71. It is good for me that I was afflicted. That I may learn your statutes. Suffering has a way of arousing our hunger for the things of God for the things that are immovable and that don't change. When everything around you seems to give way, you start reaching out for things that don't give way. So when believers suffer, they become desperate for the word of God. And so he, the psalmist says, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Finally, Psalm 119.67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Suffering has a way of clarifying what is important and what isn't important. When you get the diagnosis from the doctor that you just have a short time, you're going to find that the usual trivialities that engage and hold your attention have far less to offer you than they did before the diagnosis. Suffering just has a way of clarifying what's, what's very important in life. So we've got to begin to see our own thorns in the flesh, our own sufferings, the way that God sees it. And we've got to learn to boast in those things because we want people to see the way God is strong in the midst of our weakness. Let me pray for you. Father, use this word to prepare us for suffering. Let these not be words on the page, but let them be etched into our hearts so that when the time comes for us, we are ready. And that we could bear witness to your goodness and your sufficiency, your holiness, your faithfulness to your promises. Help us to boast in our weaknesses so that you can be exalted before a watching world. Father, we pray you do it in Jesus' name. Amen.